Good evening, brethren. I'm honored to have the opportunity to respond to an invitation and bear my witness to the priesthood of God. Have you ever pondered the question, brethren, what is the worth of a human soul? Have you ever wondered about the capacity which is within each one of us? Many years ago, when I was first called to the Council of the Twelve, I received a state conference appointment to the Monument Park West Stake here in Salt Lake City. Accompanying me was a member of the General Church Welfare Committee, President Paul C. Child. Brother Child was a student of the scriptures. He had been my state president when I was an ironic priesthood boy. We were delighted to be together. And in the priesthood session of that state conference, when it came time for Brother Child to speak, he came to the pulpit, took a copy of the triple combination in his hand, but instead of speaking, left the pulpit and the stand and walked down into the body of the priesthood. Then when he was comfortably standing among the priesthood, he opened the Doctrine and Covenants to the 18th section, and he read to the brethren, Remember, the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. And if ye should labor all your days in crying repentance to this people, and bring, save it, be one soul unto me. How great shall be your joy with him in the kingdom of my Father. And then Brother Child looked at the brethren and said, Brethren, what is the worth of a human soul? He didn't call on a bishop or a bishop's counselor or a high counselor or a stake president to answer that question. No, Brother Child selected a quorum leader who had been a bit drowsy during the early part of his presentation. The man came to his feet ramrod stiff. He did the only thing he could do. He said, Brother Child, would you repeat the question, please? And Brother Child accommodated, What is the worth of a human soul? The man stood there like he'd been struck with a two-before. It seemed an eternity was passing, and no words were coming from his mouth. I offered a prayer to my Heavenly Father, something like this. Father, I've been in this position with Brother Child. Help this man. <laughs> and then suddenly he said, The worth of a human soul is its capacity to become as God. And while the brethren of the priesthood pondered that reply, Brother Child turned and came back up to the stand, and as he passed me on the way to the pulpit, he said, A profound reply, a profound reply. And he continued his message, but I pondered that profound reply. Brethren, when we think of the worth of a human soul, I think of that great injunction of the Lord when he said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. The men to whom that command came were simple men. They were not men 
who were possessors of land or who were educated in the great institutions of learning. They were men of faith, men of devotion, but they were men called of God. Remember the words of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians. He described them, not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the things which are wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. Alma, in the Book of Mormon, said to his son Helaman, I say unto you, by simple and small things are many great things brought to pass. That beautiful promise, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Oh, my brethren of the Aaronic priesthood, that will comfort you as you prepare for your responsibilities as officers in the deacons' quorum, the teachers' quorums, the priests' quorums. It will give you encouragement as you prepare for your missions, and that particular promise will sustain you in those days of discouragement which come to everyone. That same promise, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world, that will motivate and inspire those of us who hold the Melchizedek priesthood in our work in the quorums, in the wards, in the stakes, in the missions. The Lord said, Wherefore be not weary in well-doing, for out of small things proceedeth that which become great. And then I love his statement, I, the Lord, requireth the heart, and the willing mind, and the willing and the obedient shall eat of the good of the land of Zion in the last days. Brethren, in this marvelous church of which we're a part, we recognize that faith is needed, trust is needed, enthusiasm is needed. And we must be on the move when we respond to calls to serve. I've been thinking a little bit lately about the early missionary work in this dispensation. I read where as early as April of 1830, Phineas Young, with a copy of the Book of Mormon in hand, a copy which he received from Samuel Smith, the brother of the prophet, went to Upper Canada and there in the city of Kingston, in that year of 1830, bore the first recorded testimony ever given in this dispensation outside of the borders of the United States. In 1833, the Prophet Joseph himself, along with Sidney Rigdon and Freeman Nickerson, went to Upper Canada, to the Mount Pleasant village, and there they taught the gospel. There they saw conversion before their eyes. They baptized. They established the church. And in 1835, six members of the Council of the Twelve attended a special conference in Canada. I remember, too, that it was in 1836 that Heber C. Kimball and some of the other brethren went to the home of Parley P. Pratt and there, in response to the whisperings of the Spirit of the Lord, 
put their hands on the head of Parley P. Pratt, much like Brother Oaks was explaining this evening, and they gave him a prophetic blessing. In that blessing, Heber C. Kimball said, Thou shalt go to the land of Upper Canada, even to the city of Toronto, and there ye shall find a people prepared to receive a fullness of the gospel, and they will receive you, and you will establish the church among them, and many shall receive a knowledge of the gospel, and great shall be their joy. And then he said something very significant. And from the experience in this mission and the things that come out of this mission, shall the fullness of my gospel spread to the land of England, and a great and marvelous work shall be accomplished in that land. This year we commemorate the 150th anniversary of the establishment of the work in England. I am grateful that I had the opportunity to serve as a mission president in that seedbed for proselyting even the land of eastern Canada. I am grateful that President Benson and President Hinckley have had the opportunity to serve in the land of England and be a part of that great and marvelous work which has taken place since that prophecy was first given. The call to serve, brethren, has ever characterized this work. The call came to Kirtland. Revelations followed. The call came to Missouri. Persecutions prevailed. The call came to Nauvoo. Prophets died. The call came to the Valley of the Great Salt Lake. Hardship beckoned. That journey was a trial of faith, but faith forged in the furnace of trials and tears brings forth trust and testimony. Lessons from the past, brethren, can quicken our memories and cause us to ponder how the Lord can bless His servants. He said, Wherefore, when ye are on the Lord's errand, Whatsoever ye do according to the will of the Lord is the Lord's business. A great and marvelous lesson of this truth occurred on a radio and television program that I used to watch avidly. My generation will remember Death Valley Days. Don't you remember that, brethren? And the narrator, the old ranger, he brought the Old West right into the living room. And on one occasion, he told a story that I have never forgotten. It was the story of how the glass was obtained for the windows of the St. George Tabernacle. The glass had been manufactured in the East, put in cartons, and then on a sailing vessel, which made its long and laborious way down the coast of North America, South America, around the Cape of Good Hope, and all the way back up to Southern California. Then the glass was carted to San Bernardino, where it awaited the Mormon Teamsters with their teams and wagons from St. George. David Cannon in St. George was in charge of the project to obtain the glass. One problem. Eight hundred dollars 
was owing. They had nothing. David Cannon said to his wife, Wilhelmina, and little David Jr., Do you think we can do it? And David Jr. said, I know we can, Daddy. I know we can. And he went to a secret hiding place and retrieved all that he had, two pennies, gave it to his father and said, Will this help, Daddy? Daddy said, This will help. And then Wilhelmina Cannon went to one of the hiding places that every woman has in her home, and she brought forward all that she had, $3.50 in silver. She gave it to David. Will this help? He said, It will help. And then the entire community was scoured for money. And after great sacrifice, they amassed the total of $200. $600 shy of the required amount. That night, David Cannon and his wife and boy sighed the sigh of those who have tried their best and have failed. Too tired to sleep, really. Too weary to eat. The little family prayed. Morning came early in St. George. They could hear the sound outside the Cannon home of the Teamsters the horses, the wagons, they came into the kitchen to hear the news from David Cannon. And just as David was about to tell them, they did not have the money for the glass for the windows. There was a knock at the kitchen door. And when David opened it, there was Peter Nielsen from the nearby community of Washington. And he said to Brother Cannon, Brother David, I have had a persistent dream all night that I should take the money that I have saved for my house and bring it to you, that you would have a purpose for it. And he took a red bandana, which was loaded with that which he had saved. He undid the knot and took gold piece after gold piece from that red bandana and placed each one on the kitchen table of David Cannon. When Brother Cannon counted the gold pieces, they totaled exactly $600, the precise amount needed to obtain the glass for the windows of the tabernacle. They offered a prayer of thanksgiving, and then with a shout they were on their way to obtain the precious glass. David Cannon, Jr., was 87 years of age when that program came into my living room. He smiled all the way through the narration. I think he was secretly thinking of how Peter Nielsen dropped those 600 pieces of gold, so to speak, of that value on his father's kitchen table. I think he was thinking of how the Lord had answered the prayer of the faithful right before their eyes. Brethren, temples and tabernacles are made of more than glass or stone or mortar or brick or wood, particularly when we're speaking of the temples described by Paul the Apostle, who said, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? Such temples are made of faith and fasting. They are made of service and sacrifice. They are made of tears and trials. But they bring forth trust and testimony. 
to you, my brethren, whenever you receive a call to serve, whether it's to serve our God or whether it's to serve his children here on earth, may I leave with you this assurance, whom God calls, God qualifies. He who notes the sparrow's fall shall not leave unattended the servant's need. Brethren, you are a royal priesthood. You are a chosen generation. I love you and leave my witness with you. I plead with all my heart that we will be in a position to respond to that beautiful statement of the prophet Joseph Smith when he said, Brethren, shall we not go on in so great a cause? Go forward, brethren, not backward. Courage, brethren, on, on to the victory. And may we ever be found following that plea of the prophet Joseph is my sincere prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.